Amen. I appreciate those prayers for clarity when you're functioning on less sleep. I think that's a good thing. Well, good morning, everybody. Great to see you. Um, hey, I had a moment on Ash Wednesday. Uh, we, we were meeting just down the hall for our Ash Wednesday service, and so many of you were there. And, uh, and, and we were singing through songs. We were processing things. And, and Jill gave an invitation. She said, you know, I'm going to sing, lead us in several songs here. And you have several different things that we want to invite you to consider. Uh, we have a communion station in the back, and if you feel led to, to go there, you can, you can do that. There's also a station where we have ashes to remind you of that, that we are dust, and to dust we shall return. And then another thing she said I want to invite you to try or consider is, is this cross. We had this cross set up in the front and center of the room. And she said, we've got space here in front of it, and if you'd like to come forward and during this time and kneel before the cross, you know, we invite you to do that. Well, I'm in the front row, and, and as was the case for many of us, uh, I felt like God was working me over in a good way. And, and so I'm, I closed my eyes just to try to process all of what was happening in, in my own mind, in my own heart. And when I opened my eyes at the foot of the cross, it was packed. You know, you guys are like ninjas. I didn't hear you. I was in the front row and you just got up there. But it was just beautiful. There was, it was adults. It was teenagers. It was kids. It was, it was people from different stages of life going through different things, coming forward for different reasons, but all of them humbling themselves. I, I thought it was beautiful. I thought it was beautiful. Now, there are certainly people who do not think that's beautiful. In fact, there's people who think that's ridiculous. Uh, I read an account that happened recently of, of, uh, that happened at Yale camp on the campus of Yale University where somebody, during Holy Week, they set up a cross and then on top of the cross, they attached a sign. And the sign had the letters R-O-F-L. Now, I don't speak text fluently and I don't even know if they still use this one anymore, but, but what, were, what do those initials stand for? Rolling on the floor, laughing. And so someone fashioned a, a cross, and on top of the cross, they put a sign that said, during Holy Week, that said, rolling on the floor, laughing. Now, now I want to do the best I can to, to engage in um, non-condescending discussions. You know? so, so please, as best I can, I'm trying to do that, um, understand that if things don't come out perfectly here. But, but I can only assume as I consider those words and, and that sign that they hung on the cross, I can only assume that you were mocking those of us who, um, who believe that Jesus was who he claimed to be. I mean, I, I think that's a pretty safe assumption. And as that skeptic attached that sign to the cross at Yale University, I, I wonder if any of the irony struck them even for a second. The irony that Yale was founded by people who believed that Jesus was who he claimed to be. I wonder if the irony sunk in at all that, that Yale originally was founded to educate Christian ministers and people who would serve in Christian churches. And I wonder if this person's aware that that's the, something very similar is, is true for Harvard, for Princeton, for 90% of the first 138 colleges and universities founded in America. That's true. They were founded by people who believed that Jesus was who he claimed to be. And it wasn't just happening here in America. On the other side of the ocean, Oxford, Cambridge, they were also founded by people who believed that Jesus of Nazareth was who he claimed to be. 
And it wasn't just that they were founding these educations of higher learning that, that those who could afford it could go to. In England, they started something called Sunday school. Do you know where Sunday, why Sunday school started? Sunday school started because kids had to work six days a week. What day did they have off? Sunday. So there was this Christian man who believed that Jesus was who he claimed to be. And this Christian man said, we've got to do something about this. Let's give these kids an education. And within 50 years of that Christian starting Sunday school, 1.5 million kids were receiving an education from 160,000 volunteer teachers. Mock this movement, if you will, but show me an atheist or agnostic equivalent to that. You know? Those of us who believe that Jesus was who he claimed to be have, have, have always been advocates, at least should be, advocates of, of intellectual integrity. And let's even go back further here. When Rome collapsed and the Huns and the Goths and the Visigoths overwhelmed Roman civilization, who preserved the classics from destruction? During the Dark Ages, who kept literacy alive? Again, laugh if you will, but I would be extremely slow to cast stones at the intellectual integrity of a movement that developed most of the world's first alphabets, that compiled most of the world's first dictionaries. The person who fashioned that sign may have not known that the first name written in many languages, and this is still true today, is what name? Jesus. That was the first name ever written in some people's languages because it was Christians creating the alphabets. Now, as a former skeptic, as someone who is drawn at an early age to reason and drawn to empirical data, as someone who's, who never did well with the words, because I said so, I hated those words. Hey, anyone else hate those words? I hated those words, all right? So I'm not a person who just, oh, because my parents said this, you know, or, or oh, because it sounds like it could be true. I'm not a person who, who normally gravitates towards that. That's why I'm so excited for this series that starts today. Because what we're going to do between now and Easter, we're going to look at a testimony that comes to us from a first century physician named there's a place to write this in your notes if you're not familiar with this person that we're going to be looking at his, his documents here for the next couple of weeks. Luke was a first century physician who believed that Jesus was who he claimed to be. And I want to present to you, Luke's testimony is not easy to dismiss. It is not easy to dismiss. Um, I fought the calling to work in a church as long as I could. And during one of my extended attempts to dodge all of this, I started down the path towards becoming a doctor. There was a, a couple-year stretch at, at Bethel where I, I, I'm like, that's it. I, I, I'm not going to do this. And so I'm going I'm to become a doctor. And I went for it. I took physics. I took chemistry. I took biology. I took anatomy classes. I devoted myself to the world of equations and cadavers and microscopes and labs. I spent my hard-earned money on the most expensive books in the bookstore, and I invested hour after hour in some of the most challenging courses that my college offered. And this much I know. Physicians, at least the good ones, they deal in reality. Physicians deal in the realm of reality. They deal in the realm of cause and effect. 
The world of a physician is a world in which your interpretation of empirical data can literally mean the difference between life and death. Think how much faith we put in physicians that they correctly interpret data. Because we'll let a physician cut us open, take something out in order to heal us. What other profession do you put that much faith in somebody? Well, the Bible, the reason I'm saying all this, the Bible is comprised of a collection of ancient documents. There's not, the, we believe the Holy Spirit inspired it all, and we'll talk about that in, in this fall, but it's also a collection of, of individual documents. And one of the people who contributed to this collection of documents is a first century physician named Luke. He is the author of the book of Luke and the book of Acts. So let's look at some of what he had to say. Here's how he begins his first book, the book of Luke. Let's go with chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. And I'll, I'll do my best to try to read this. It's all one sentence. The first four verses are all one sentence. I'll do my best here. But I also was returning here, if you have your Bible, so we invite you to open up to it. Um, if you don't have a Bible at home, we'd love to give you one free today. We believe this is a one-of-a-kind book. And so we, would, we, we keep a stack of them there at the table. We encourage you to, to take one. You don't have to sign anything. Don't have to let us know. We would love to give you one as a gift today. All right, here's what it says in Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all these things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Now, confession time, this is one of the sentences in the Bible that make me just go, ah. I don't know. You know just, my eyes gloss over those. The same thing happens in Paul. You, you get the, the long sentences. I'm like, can't you just chop it up? Can't you just, you know, put a period there instead of a comma? But one of the things that I did um, in preparation for today is, is look into this introduction. I'd never done that before. 45 years old. I never studied the introduction because I thought it's the introduction. But you miss a lot when you fail to study pieces. And one of the things that Commentary after commentary after commentary brought up as they said the introduction was so critical back in those days. So critical. And they reminded me that one of the things they reminded me of is, is back then the books were scrolls. And so one of the reasons it was important is because you can't browse a scroll very well. And so the opening words, they carry a lot of weight. The first words on a scroll, it's the book jacket, it's the title page, it's the table of contents, it's the foreword, it's the introduction all into one. And not only that, when, when you were trying to position yourself as an authority, you would take time and you would craft that first sentence. And it's a whole lot more challenging to create a sentence that's like that than it is to just do little choppy sentences. So these are things I hadn't considered before. And we don't have time to get into all the literary everything that's going on, and I'm not a great person to comment on that anyway. But I do want to comment on just one thing that, I, that, that, that made me go, hi, I never noticed that before. In his introduction, here's just an example of one little thing that Luke was doing in his introduction. What we call verses 1 and 2, and what we call verses 3 and 4, he had this parallel thing going between them. Look at this. 
In 1 and 2, he says, many have undertaken. In 3 and 4, it seemed good to me also. In 1 and 2, to compile a narrative. 3 and 4, to write and order the account. 1 and 2, eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. 3 and 4, having followed all these things closely. Uh, 1 and 2, as they were delivered to us. 3 and 4, that you may know. There's so much going on in this opening introduction. Scholar N.T. Wright compares Luke's opening sentence to one of those huge stone entrances that welcome you into a beautifully constructed building. Luke opens with an extremely well-constructed introduction, a subtle signal to readers that they are beginning a scholarly, well-researched document. And Luke says this is a narrative, he says. It's a narrative, and Luke is the narrator. Someone named Theophilus is the narratee. The name Theophilus means dear to God or lover of God. A case can be made that he's a benefactor of considerable standing. And Luke makes a promise. He makes a promise to Theophilus and all the other Theophili that are going to read his report. He says this, Luke promises to provide this orderly account of the events that had everybody talking in those days. Events surrounding a man, a Jewish carpenter from Nazareth named Jesus. So what we want to look at today as we launch a series is to ask the question, can his testimony be trusted? Why not just roll on the floor laughing, that people believe these preposterous things. Why not? Well, let's start right here. I, I want to start with this. Luke's authorship was uncontested. This is important to me. This is important to me, that Luke's authorship was uncontested. In other words, the overwhelming evidence points to Luke actually writing Luke. I'm not aware of any challenges to Luke's authorship before the 19th century. That's significant. Before the 19th century, there's no evidence that, that Luke was contested as the author of Luke. And let's be honest about this. If someone comes in the 19th century and says, well, because I examined and compared the different literary styles, blah, 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 blah. I mean, it takes a certain amount of audacity to claim that you discovered something 600, 1,600 years later that no one noticed for all those years. I'm not, maybe, maybe I'm the only one. To me, that takes a lot of audacity. And if you're going to say everybody that came before us was wrong, you better have some really strong evidence to overturn that. I'm not aware of any of that strong evidence. All of the early witnesses agree that Luke was the author of Luke, and he was a doctor. Here's why that's significant. It's significant because Luke is a part of other accounts that we have from that time period. This is from a letter. This is from a letter that was that can be dated to the year 62. Luke, the beloved what? Physician greets you. Now again, the Bible is a collection of documents. We have several documents in there. One of the documents in there, actually three, at least three of the documents in there mention Luke. And this is a person named Paul mentioning Luke. Many of you may have heard of the Apostle Paul. This then collaborates Luke's account in Acts where he says, I was traveling with Paul. So you have these two independent documents, actually more than two independent documents, verifying that Luke was traveling with Paul. Here's another thing that's significant about this. If this can be dated to 62, and Luke is the author of Luke, then Luke was in a position to interview eyewitnesses who saw Jesus. Because that dates it within 30 years. Dates him within 30 years of Jesus. That's, this is significant to me. So, Luke's authorship was uncontested for 1,600 years. 
It was uncontested when this narrative was being circulated. May I also present to you, with Luke, that his scholarship is exemplary. Not only was his authorship uncontested, Luke's scholarship is exemplary. Luke conducted his investigation the, one, the way you would expect a physician to conduct himself. Let's go back to something that Luke says as he prepares, and he prepares us with his opening statement. Here's what he says in his opening statement. He contrasts many with these ministers of the word or the stewards of the word. He contrasts two groups. There's the many, and then there's the people that I interviewed. He, he wasn't content to just go on hearsay. He subtly contrasts two groups, the many and the ministers of the word. Luke sifted through the data. He spent the most time with the most credible witnesses. Again, he wasn't satisfied with hearsay. Luke interviewed, quote, the ministers or stewards of the word. And when you unpack that language, there's some synonyms going on there that, that, you, that employ a synonym between ministers of the word and the word of God. Synonym. <laughs> I told, thanks for the prayer of clarity, man. Let's pray it again, right? <laughs> All right. So he's saying that these are people, they are looked upon. The people I talk to are looked upon by their community. They've been vetted by their community as people who are accountable to pass on the word of God. That's who I'm interviewing. And that word that I have bolded there, delivered, that is a technical term. It's a technical term that means passing on the tradition. So when Luke went to people, he sends this little subtle cue in that intro. He says, I went to the people who are charged by the community to accurately pass along the truth. Now, in our society, we don't tend to give verbal... Um, verb, I'll, let me put it the way I wrote it. In our modern age, we tend to have a bias against verbal testimony. In fact, I was thinking about this. A lot of my teachers wouldn't accept it. I would go to experts in the field. They said, you can't use them as a source. Why? Because they didn't write a book. You know, we have a bias. We have a bias against verbal testimony. We want to see it in written form. That's the modern age. That's not how it was in the ancient world. And they had a great point. 500 years prior to these events, Plato warned of the dangers of print. Plato believed that human memories were the best way to get things right and pass them on. Plato wasn't the only one. Even a century after Luke, you can find teachers warning you, you can't look a scroll in the eyes like you can somebody when you're trying to find the truth. You can't, you can't take the scroll the same way you can a person and say, how do they stand in the community? Interesting points. Now that said, it's a good thing that Luke did preserve these testimonies in writing. One might go as far as to say Luke's timing was providential. Not long after Luke conducted his investigation, war broke out in the region. The Jews rebelled against the occupying Roman forces in the year 66. Shortly after this was written, and Rome crushed the rebellion. They destroyed Jerusalem. They decimated the towns and the villages in the region. And they killed many of the stewards of the word. Had Luke and others not preserved these words in written form, could have died out within the generation. And all you would have left were the myths. All you would have left were the legends. All you would have left was the hearsay. My point in telling you all this is to say that Luke started with factually sound source material. And it shows. Take a look. This is one example that you're going to find in the book of Luke. This is Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. In your head, try to count how many facts Luke packs into a passage like this. 
facts that are verifiable. All right? In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of there and, and the other place, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene in Texas. Wow. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. All of those names, all of those places, all of those time periods have been verified. Luke, you know, you start fact-checking Luke, and you find out that Luke's facts check out. I've claimed before that the Bible is the most vetted book in history. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. As I was doing my research for this week, I came across a historian who had a lot of time on his hands and provided a list of 84 facts of the, of the last 16 chapters of Acts that have been confirmed by historical and archaeological research. So here's the type of thing. When people try to fact-check Luke, here's the kind of stuff they find. Here's a couple examples of the 84 from Luke's uh, first, last 16 chapters of Acts. Look at this. Luke identifies the correct order of approach, you know, when you're, when you're going on this route. Luke identifies a particular nautical landmark. Luke correctly associates that place as the center of dying and provides the correct designations for the magistrates of this colony. Luke accurately reports on the presence of a Jewish synagogue in Thessalonica. Not just that, he uses the proper term to designate the title of whatever it said before the slide went. Um, Fact-checking Luke. Luke accurately references a Jewish synagogue in Athens and uses the correct Athenian slang word for Paul in the local court. Tyrannus of Ephesus, mentioned by Luke, is attested to in first century inscriptions. The use of the plural word, plural word, that one in Greek, is a remarkable reference to the fact that two men, look at this, they use the word that, that represents the fact that two men were co-jointly exercising the functions of proconsul in Ephesus during the time of Luke's reference in Acts 19.38. And here, the name Por- Porcius Festus agrees precisely with uh, that given by the historian Josephus. I, look at, some of this stuff is extremely detailed. This is the kind of thing that Luke would say this is the kind of um, confirmation that, that we find. You fact-check Luke, you see that his facts check out. Like any good doctor, Luke is concerned with accuracy. And it shows in his careful presentation of the facts. All right, well, in addition to everything we say fo- so, said so far, in fact, just building on what we said so far, Luke's claims have been externally verified. Luke's claims have been externally verified. Now, Luke does have some source material that is unique to Luke that you don't find anywhere else, but a tremendous, my point here is, a tremendous amount of what Luke testifies to is documented elsewhere. In the New Testament alone, again, it's a collection of documents. You have all of these sources verifying, substantiating, building on what Luke says. But as a skeptic, as a skeptic, I'm... I'm more intrigued by what were the non-Christians saying about Jesus. And does that collaborate with what Luke says? A source that was either neutral or against Christianity, what were they saying? Here are some examples of, 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 of information that you can find written within 150 years of Jesus. And this is what people who were either hostile to Christianity or uh, neutral to Christianity were saying. Take a look at this. None of these are coming from Christian sources. 
Here's some non-Christian testimony regarding Jesus of Nazareth. That one, Jesus lived during the time of Tiberius Caesar. Two, Jesus lived a virtuous life. Three, Jesus performed miraculous signs. Four, Jesus had a brother named James. Five, Jesus claimed to be the Messiah. Six, Jesus was crucified under Pontius Pilate. Seven, Jesus was crucified on the eve of the Jewish Passover. Eight, darkness and an earthquake occurred when Jesus died. Nine, Jesus' disciples believed Jesus rose from the dead. Ten, Christianity spread rapidly, even as far as Rome. Eleven, Jesus' disciples denied the Roman gods and worshipped Jesus as God. Twelve, Jesus' disciples were willing to die for their beliefs. That sounds a lot more like the Apostles' Creed than a rebuttal. If you aren't personally, you know, if you aren't personally willing to believe that Luke's testimony can be trusted, I would at least hope that you could say, I can see why you might. This is hard to dismiss. Hard to dismiss. In fact, I'll, I'll go this far. Apart from a bias against the supernatural, I'm not aware of any evidence from the ancient world or modern archaeological disciplines that overturn the testimony that Luke provides which leads scholars to say things like this from Craig Blomberg. He, he's good. He says this, a historian who's been found trustworthy where he or she can be tested should be given the benefit of the doubt in cases where no tests are available. And over the next six weeks, we're going to look at some of these things where no tests are available besides the other witness accounts that, that we have. Here are some of the things that we're going to press into between now and Easter. Tim's taking this one on next week. Why did the government, military, and religious establishment want Jesus dead? Even though there were government rulers, there was military leaders, and there were religious leaders who didn't want Jesus died. Well, then why did they do it? Why did they conspire to have him killed? We're going to look at that uh, next week. Jill's taking this one on. How did Jesus respond to those who had lost their way? We're going to look at that in two weeks. And I am really excited three weeks from now. This is fascinating to me. How does a doctor deal with accounts of miracles? I'm really excited to, to press into that. If you've never read C.S. Lewis's Miracles, ooh, great book. Anyway, but, but let's press into this. How did Luke deal with miracles? And, and similar to it, I, this next one also has me fascinated. What did Luke do with all these reports of a Holy Spirit? What did Luke do with that? In Luke's writings, sometimes do a cross, just go to BibleGateway.com, do a word search, Holy Spirit, and Luke. In Acts, Luke is mentioning this Holy Spirit all the time. What does a doctor do with that? Oh, all of these I'm excited for. On Palm Sunday, we're going we're gonna to look at Holy Week. And why was the timing of these events and the way they unfolded so astonishing? And then on Easter Sunday, what does a doctor do with an empty tomb? I'm, I'm thrilled. I'm excited. Uh, as I look at this roadmap here that we have between now and Easter. And as we bring today's teaching to a close, here's what I want to offer you for your consideration. I strongly believe that Luke's investigation merits a response. Luke presents his narrative, all of it, as history. If Luke was just recording some dates and, and, and times and places... That would be one thing. But Luke is recording all of this as history. The statements attributed to Jesus, he's recording them as history. The activity of the Holy Spirit, he records them as history. Angelic visitations, demonic possessions, 
even miraculous signs and wonders performed by Jesus and those who believed in him. He presents it as history. And I, I want to present to you as I say those things, there's no denying that something happened 2,000 years ago. I mean, history is literally divided over it. Something happened. Um, Dante, I looked at that link that you sent me. Have any of you guys ever heard of the Minimum Bible? I, I hadn't either. If you got a smartphone, type it in, Minimum Bible. Look up those graphics. What a pastor slash artist did is he took every book of the Bible and he created a, a simple piece of art for each book of the Bible to summarize it. And you can laugh if you want when you see my rendition of Acts. But of, um, of uh, the book of Acts, what he did with it was just fascinating. When I, and, and I'm bringing this up in the context of saying something happened 2,000 years ago. Something happened. What he did is he had a really small, this was much smaller. He had a little cross, a little circle around it. And I can only guess it was representing this little... I'm a trained professional. Don't try this at home. <laughs> um, so I can only assume what he was, he was representing there is this little circle of people who gathered around Jesus. That little circle of people, it spread to the whole world. There's two billion people on the planet today that if they had to check a box, would check the Christian box. Something happened. Something happened. Something happened in the Middle East 2,000 years ago. Something without precedent. Something without parallel. And the shock waves from these events are still being felt today. If Luke and all the other reports that we have can be trusted, what happened defies any earthly explanation. Jesus of Nazareth was reported to have read other people's thoughts. He predicted the future. He spoke with an authority like no other. He healed the sick. He cast out demons. Even the wind and the waves obeyed him. And Luke's investigation, hear this, Luke's investigation uncovered a promise that was associated with these acts. A promise from God. A promise that dates to the dawn of humanity. A promise that took the form of a covenant to Abraham. A promise that has been extended to us. Jesus didn't position himself as just a rabbi or just a teacher or just a liberator or just a humanitarian. Jesus claimed to be the fulfillment of that promise. Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. Jesus claimed to be the Messiah. Jesus claimed to be God. And Luke concurs with those who believed that Jesus was who he said he was. Here's what he says in Acts. Luke writes this. He's quoting one of those first century believers who in a sermon says this, Salvation is found in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which you must be saved. That's why I say this merits a response. Because these are the claims that people are making about Jesus. They're not claiming him just to be a teacher. They're not claiming him just to be a humanitarian. They're saying this is who he was. There's always been those who won't accept that. There's always been those who won't accept that. Before Jesus, uh, before this R-O-F-L sign was hung on a cross, maybe some of you guys have seen this associated with a cross before. I-N-R-I. Has anyone ever seen that associated with a cross? It, many um, many uh, crucifixes, they'll, they'll have a little sign at the top. It says I-N-R-I. And that's abbreviation for Latin. An abbreviation for Latin. And, and 
It's an inscription. It's a sign that was hung not only in Latin but also in Greek and Aramaic, I believe, um, hung above Jesus on the cross when he was crucified. Luke mentions it in his writings, Luke 23, 38. There was an inscription. They're talking about during the crucifixion, as Jesus on the cross, above him was this inscription. And this is what was abbreviated by the initials I-N-R-I. This is the king of the Jews, Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. So that's the R-O-L-R-O-whatever isn't the uh, first time an inscription appeared on a cross. You know, I can't laugh this one off. Especially when I was a teenager and a, and a young adult. I, I wanted to be able to walk away from this so I could do what I wanted to do. At least what I thought I wanted to do. But as someone who's walked even just a few steps down the path to becoming a doctor, I find Luke's testimony hard, hard to dismiss. As someone who still deals in the world of reality, as someone who still doesn't do well with the words because I said so, hey, I'm not intrigued by religion. I'm not intrigued by religion. I'm I'm not intrigued by religions that cannot verify with facts the things that they say. I'm not, I'm not intrigued by that. I'm not intrigued by religions that utilize terror as a conversion tool. That doesn't intrigue me. That saddens me. It infuriates me. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not intrigued by religions that say to achieve our religion, you deny reality. Reality is what brought us to where we are. I think, therefore, I am. I, I, I don't, I, I'm not intrigued by religion like that. Christianity is different because no religion other than Christianity has Jesus of Nazareth. And the testimonies, the accounts about him aren't easy to disregard. So as we begin this journey, you know, uh, towards Easter, let's all close today's service by standing and let me, let me pray um, for us as we dive into these texts. Let's, let's pray. Father, again, forgive me when I cross that line towards condescending tones and, and disrespect for people's intelligence, Father. I, forgive me for that. I pray your Holy Spirit would, um, would heal um, anything that, that I did wrong there. Or I shouldn't say anything what I've done wrong. Father, I pray instead that your spirit will draw us towards facts and will draw us into um, to verification of these testimonies so that we can do one or the other, that we can either reject this as foolishness, misguided, or we can deal with it as it presents itself. Holy Spirit, as, as we press into this unparalleled life, this Jesus of Nazareth. Father, we pray that you'll help us to see who he was more clearly, who he is more clearly, and then give us a clear sense of what we do with this. Bless us in that way, not just today, but as we head towards Easter and beyond. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a great day.